please uh, remain standing and turn with me to John chapter 10. I'm sorry, not John 10. It's Exodus 10. Uh, both called the wrong uh, one. Wrong chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10. I'm going to read just three verses here, but they represent a repeated pattern uh, that comes up all through the account of the ten plagues. It has to do with the reason God wanted Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Why was God going to deliver them from slavery to the Egyptians? Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Amen. Let's t- turn now to Romans chapter 6. Let my people go, that they may serve me. Okay, Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity And to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God... The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. William Ernest Henley was a poet who wrote uh, the famous lines called Invictus, which means unconquered. And in that poem, he says, I thank whatever gods may be for my 
unconquerable soul. This is clearly not a Christian prayer, right? It's kind of agnostic. It's whatever gods there may be out there, I don't know, but what I really care about is my unconquerable soul, kind of standing alone against the universe. And uh, so he knows it's inevitable death is certainly coming one day, and he doesn't really have any expectation of any kind of life after death. But um, he says, basically, as long as I'm alive, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to face life head on. Uh, will find me unafraid. And the last stanza of the poem gives us then really his main point, the reason I'm quoting it to you. He says, it matters not how straight or narrow the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So this person is asserting his own sovereignty over his own life. And nobody else, no person, no other force of the universe, and certainly not God, can claim authority over his choices or his destiny. Well, in contrast to that poem, I I want you to consider another poet, uh, but a very different sort of poet. This is Bob Dylan. And some of you have heard me quote this before. I couldn't resist doing it again. Where uh, Dylan says, you may be a construction worker working on a home. Might be living in a mansion. You might live in a dome. You may own guns. You may even own tanks. You may be somebody's landlord. You may even own banks but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, and it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And Dylan is bursting that bubble of somebody who wants to say, oh, I don't answer to anybody. I'm my own boss. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. No. No, that's not really true for anybody because it's this basic fact of human existence that we are all serving someone. The question is, who and why are we doing it? And what are the consequences? What are the consequences? That's the set of questions that Paul's dealing with here in the second half of Romans 6. And we're going to look at this passage then in three parts this morning. Verses 15 to 19, we'll call set free to serve God. Set free to serve God. In verses 20 and 21, um, fake freedom's foul fruit. I kind of apologize for that one, but oh well. Um, Verses 22 to 23, then sin's wages versus God's gift. So set free to serve God, fake freedom's foul fruit, and then sin's wages versus God's gift. Okay. Last time, um, we heard Paul start this chapter with a question similar to the one in verse 15. But last time, the question was, um, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if our sin uh, creates this opportunity for God to show his grace... 
well, then shouldn't we sin as much as possible, right? Because more sin means more grace. Isn't that great for everybody? Win-win. And Paul says, of course not. That's ridiculous. Uh, because you are united to, uh, to Jesus Christ by faith. That means that there has been a kind of death and resurrection in your life. Your old sinful self has died, and the resurrection power of Jesus has now produced a new kind of life in your heart, a a Christ-like life. So your identity, in a very real sense, has changed. And at the very end of that section, in verse 14, uh, Paul described this great change by saying, sin will no longer have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And that's what leads into the question in verse 15. First, we need to think about what does Paul mean by not under law, but under grace. When Paul speaks about being under law, what he's talking about is laboring under the law's condemning power. Being subject to that way that God's law points this accusing finger at us and says, you have done wrong. You are guilty. And it's, it's just the facts. That's the verdict. The law doesn't, the law all by itself can't change that. It can just point it out. That's what it means to be under law. See, when we put our faith in Jesus, something changes there. At that point, we no longer have hanging over us that frown of disapproval, that wagging finger of the law pointing out our faults. See, where that frown, where that pointing finger was before, now there's something very different. Now you look in that same place and what you see is God's gracious smile of fatherly favor and forgiveness. Instead of that pointing finger, you see a welcoming open hand of peace. You're under grace now, as Paul's saying. Jesus kept the law in your place. And so now that sword is not, you think about the sword of Damocles, if you've ever heard that story, the king had that sword dangling over his head by a thread. That's what it feels like to be under the law. That threat of judgment because you are guilty. But see, now that sword is not hanging over you anymore. It's not. Why? Because it has already fallen, but not on you. It's fallen on Jesus. That's good news. It means that you're not under law anymore, but under grace. So that leads Paul to this next rhetorical question. Verse 15, again, what then? It's almost like Paul saying, now I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. If we're under grace now, not under the law, then you can imagine a kind of mischievous... Uh, half-smile spreading on somebody's face, scheming glint in a sinner's eye, thinking, aha, now I can really do whatever I want and get away with it because I'm not under law anymore, I'm under grace. 
Again, that's obviously wrong, right? Every, every, you can see just on the face of it that that's wrong, but then you think, but, but why is that wrong? Why is that wrong? Why doesn't that logic work? And we have to ask that question. We have to follow it all the way up because, here's why, it's because there's something inside of us that, that thinks, well, maybe that logic does work. In fact, there's something inside of us that maybe wants that logic to work. We want to have an excuse to be able to get away with whatever we want to do. What can I get away with? That is so often how uh, we're tempted to think about sin and grace. So how close to the line can I get? Or even how far across the line can I go before I really get in trouble, before God really nails me because I've you know, gone a step too far? And so Paul has to ask this question, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And again, the answer is by no means. Just like verse 2, remember, may it never be, sometimes it's translated, certainly not, or last time we said, no way, Jose. Okay, so do you not know, Paul says, <coughs> excuse me, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves. You are slaves of the one whom you obey. In other words, free is as free does. You get that? Free is as free does, or the proof is in the pudding. So if you really want to know who somebody works for, you could do this. You could go to the HR office you could look for their employment paperwork, a contract or something, but it's probably a little bit easier, and um, actually it might be more accurate, in a practical sense, just to go and watch them and to find out who do they take orders from? Who do they take orders from? Who has that influence over you where when they tell you to do something, you do it? Let's think about it this other way. Um, let's think about this topic of slavery. So slavery uh, can be a formal, legal relationship spelled out on paper. Um, and at times in the past, it has been, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be um, to qualify as slavery. So today, this is, this is especially important today, because today slavery is officially illegal in most places but that doesn't mean it doesn't still exist. Right? Just because it's illegal, it's not on paper, doesn't mean it's not real. Human trafficking is still a huge problem in many countries, including the U.S. And human traffickers are notoriously deceptive because they'll use euphemisms. They'll call what they're doing by many other names. And if law enforcement is going to get to the bottom of it, they've got to be able to say, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, and swims like a duck. If these people are in a position where they have to do whatever you say, and you can coerce them and control them, and there's nothing they can do about it, well, you can call them your employees, you can say that they're somehow under your protection, but the fact is, that's slavery. They're your slaves. Paul is telling us here, look, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, and swims like a duck. When you do 
what your sinful desires tell you to do, when your sinful instincts say jump, and your actions respond with how high, then it's just the facts. The fact is, you are living as a slave to sin. If you want to know whose servant you really are, just look at your life and think, who am I taking orders from? Who am I obeying? Thankfully, after that bleak beginning, we get to verse 17 and that wonderful word, but, sorry about that, but, but, um, thanks be to God. But thanks be to God that that enslavement to sin is not you anymore. It does not define you anymore, not if you belong to Jesus. Being united to Jesus Christ means that you don't have to obey sin anymore. This is good news. This is part of the gospel for you to hear this, that when temptation speaks to you, you don't have to listen. You don't have to listen. When your sinful desires tell you to jump, you don't have to say how high anymore. You, who once were slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you become instead slaves of righteousness. In other words, you have a new master now. You are standing in a different chain of command. You take orders from somebody else now. You're not slaves of your sin anymore. You're slaves of righteousness. Now, that last sentence, I just kind of said it and went on, right? I know that can sound a little jarring, a little odd. And actually, Paul recognizes that. You can see in what he says immediately afterwards. Um, Paul recognizes people are going to think, wait, I thought the point was that Jesus sets us free. We won't want to be enslaved to all. You're saying now we're slaves to righteousness. Uh, being slaved to anything doesn't sound very nice to me. Uh, Paul, you're making it sound like we're trading one kind of bondage for another. So that's why Paul interrupts himself in verse 19, and he says, okay, now I'm speaking in human terms. It's like he's saying, okay, now work with me here. I know this is a little bit of an odd metaphor, but you've got to understand there's this very real sense where being saved by Christ means that you're switching masters. You're coming under the command of somebody different. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Notice, this is something active he's calling us to do. It's this willing participation. It's this, it's this uh, giving of ourselves. We do have this agency here. It's not just something happening to us. It's something God is um, having us to, to do, to give ourselves, present our members. This makes me think of those stories from medieval times, other eras too, but I especially think of knights and castles when I get this image in my head. Of a, of a soldier or a knight or something, or nobleman, saying to a higher leader, maybe the king or, or something like that, saying, I offer you my sword. My sword is yours. And, and he would quite literally take his sword and hold it maybe with open palms across his hands, or maybe, maybe you know, that 
turning the hilt towards you know, somebody, saying, I offer you my sword. Think about that gesture. And by offering his sword, he's saying, I offer myself. I offer everything I own, everything I represent. It is at your service. At your service. Think about that phrase. Before you trusted Christ, that is exactly what you were saying to sin. In fact, whenever, you're, whenever you choose sin over righteousness, that's what you're saying to sin. You're saying, sin, I am at your service. But now what Paul is saying is you're, you're to take your sword, as it were, your, your whole self, really, and present it instead to the Lord Jesus. All that I am and ever hope to be, I give it all to thee. I am at your service. Now you may hear that and be thinking, well, okay, but I don't want to be at anyone's service. I want to be at my own service. I thought the gospel was supposed to give me freedom. I want to be my own boss. I like to think of myself as kind of this, a spiritual entrepreneur. I work for myself. I, uh, I set my own schedule. Um, I own my own spiritual business. Isn't that how we so often can be tempted to live our lives? I own my own spiritual business. I'm nobody's slave. Paul's just trying to show you basically what Bob Dylan was singing about. Listen, you've got to serve somebody. Nobody is really autonomous. Nobody is really the master of their own fate or the captain of their own soul. And as long as we keep deluding ourselves with that illusion, we're simply going to be ignorant or in denial about who we're really serving. And that doesn't make it go away. It just makes you all that more enslaved because you're not even paying attention. Part of what it means to be human is that you're somebody's servant. And the question you've got to ask is, whose? Do you know? Are you reflecting on it? Or are you in denial about it? Are you pretending to be your own boss when you're really being controlled? You are taking orders from someone or something else that does not have your best interests at heart. That's the thing, is that this is destructive for you. It's not life-giving. It's a bad place to be spiritually. Uh, see, there is this fake freedom that Paul wants to warn us again against in verses 20 and 21. He says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free in a way. You were free in regard to righteousness. So on food labels, you might see that an item is like fat-free or gluten-free. But you're not going to have to worry about that ingredient in, this, uh, in that item, right? Well, apart from Christ, you could say... We were righteousness free. Free of perfumes, dyes, and righteousness. None of that nasty, oppressive righteousness stuff here. You're free of it. See, sin, that's the way sin advertises itself to us. Sin advertises itself to us as righteousness free, as though that were somehow a good thing, as though that were somehow a selling point, as though righteousness is this like oppressive, toxic, awful, repressive thing to be avoided. So once I had the uh, great misfortune to drink a diet, caffeine-free Mountain Dew. It tasted awful. Um, and besides that, what's the whole point of Mountain Dew? Right? 
See, sin is trying to sell you a righteousness-free life. You don't have to obey God. You can be free of all of those restraints of religion. Wouldn't that be nice? And really at the root of it all is what the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with. And he said, you can, you can actually be like God. You can essentially be God yourself. You can decide for, for yourself what's uh, good and evil without having to listen to him anymore. But don't you see how that's a false freedom? In embracing that freedom, supposedly Adam and Eve were simply giving in to the tyranny of the devil. They were obeying him, taking orders from him. And look where that got them. This false freedom doesn't get you to the point of having no master. It's simply trading one master for another much, much worse and more tyrannical one. Because if you're not taking orders from God, you will inevitably start taking orders from somebody else. From sin. And your sinful desires will take over and dominate your life. Uh, During presidential election years... Uh, the challenger will often ask, see if anybody asks it this year. I think Reagan was famous for this. Uh, they'll ask, are you better off than you were four years ago? Are you better off? And in verse 21, it's like Paul is raising that are you better off question. When you were enslaved to your sinful desires, were you better off then? Were you really more free then? What fruit were you getting at that time? from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. So I want to uh, think about this with some real-life examples. I'm going to start with something obvious. I'm going to start with um, a kind of larger-than-life illustration of a, of a serious addiction to alcohol. Somebody who's an alcoholic. Um, that person is... I think it's easy to see how that person is enslaved. They're enslaved to... The alcohol, right? It dominates their life. That craving so controls them that they they feel they have to have it, and they will do anything, literally anything. Everything else takes second place to the demands of that addiction. And, of course, if that trend continues, if there's no intervention, if there's no turn, if there's no change, that pathway often ends literally in death. Okay, so that's kind of um, extreme case with a lot of a lot of physical complications of addiction thrown in, right? But I think it's a very good, vivid illustration of other kinds of enslavement to sin we're talking about that maybe don't have that same physiological component, uh, or maybe they do to a greater or lesser degree. But what I'm talking about is this idea of serving, being enslaved by a desire saying, I am at your service. I will do whatever it takes to please you, to keep you satisfied. And the end is death. Again, not every sin is just like that, but on the level of your heart, that is what happens every time you give in to any sin. There's this destructive desire that wants to dominate and control your life, and you're saying, okay, Okay. So let's think about a different type of sin. Let's think about anger. Let's think about anger. So your spouse or your child or your brother or sister, 
your pastor does something that really irritates you. And, and your sinful anger tells you at that moment, obey me. Lash out. Let those stinging, sarcastic words fly. Raise your voice. Intimidate them or stew and give them the silent treatment. Say that zinger, that perfect one that's just come to mind. And what's happening is sin is saying, obey me. Won't it feel so good? You deserve it. They deserve it, don't they? And you will feel so free if you just let it go. Right? Like that song, right? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That's what Elsa sings. She's going to be the master of her fate, the captain of her soul. But if you've seen the movie, does Elsa end up free? I think it's very telling how popular that song became out of context of the movie. Because that really is the way so many people are trying to live their lives. That's the message of pop culture of what it's like to really live your life, to really be yourself. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Just let it go. Whoever you are, whatever you're feeling, just that's what you're supposed to do. But that's the story. Yeah, remember how she ends up walled up in that ice castle that becomes like a, a prison of her own making. Sin promises you not just pleasure, it promises you freedom. But it doesn't give you freedom, it enslaves you. Whatever you obey, that is your master. That is what you're a slave to. So the question is not, are you taking orders from anyone? The question is, who are you taking orders from, and why, and what are the consequences in your life? And Paul says, the end of those things is death. Now, we don't have time to get into every possible example of this. I've used anger as one test case. We could go through the same thought process for greed, for lust, for laziness, for fear even. Fear can do this to us. Um, gluttony, pride. There's a whole range of these, these sinful desires and Dynamics that go on in our hearts that enslave us and try to get us to obey them instead of obeying the Lord. And in all of those cases, and many more, Paul wants to stay here loud and clear this morning. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, things are different now. Because when you obey God, the fruit is no longer foul and deadly. It leads to sanctification. And its end, eternal life. That word sanctification, uh, some of you know it, some of you might not. Um, it comes from two words meaning make and holy. Make and holy. It's this process in the Christian life where God makes us more holy over time. Makes us more like Jesus over time. Um, we often compare it with justification, which was Paul's topic in chapters 3 and 4 and 5. Uh, justification is when God forgives our sins once and for all. When he calls us, declares us righteous because of what Jesus did for us in his death and his resurrection. Sanctification, then, is this process through the Christian life where God overpowers our sin and, and he makes us more holy from the inside out 
through what Jesus is doing now, now in us. There's what Jesus did for us, and now it's what Jesus is doing in us. And Paul says that when you serve God, the fruit you get is sanctification, and its end, eternal life. In other words, eternal life is, is, is like the culmination of the sanctification process. Um, that may be a little hard for you to get your mind around, especially if you um, have kind of a one-dimensional understanding of what eternal life is all about. When a lot of people think about eternal life, they, they'll think about it as a purely future reward. They'll think of it purely as life that goes on and on and on forever, um, after, after death in particular. Uh, they'll think of it like, here's your prize for being a Christian, for believing in Jesus. And the prize is that when you die, you get to go to heaven and, and live without ever dying again. Um, but that's not really the way the Bible speaks about eternal life primarily. Eternal life is not just this future prize. It's not just um, life that just goes on indefinitely. Eternal life in the Bible, as Jesus speaks of it, as the Apostle speaks of it, eternal life is a kind of life. It's, it's a different way of living. It is a, a, a better life that God gives to those who belong to Jesus, not starting then, but starting now. It really is it's the principle of that resurrection life of Jesus. That's what's making you more holy now. That's what's making you more like him now. With the end, the ultimate destination, that full maturity coming in that forever life with Jesus in the everlasting future. But it doesn't start then, it starts now. It's not something that we earn. This is something people might get wrong too. It's, it's not like you, you have to get sanctified to a certain level. You've got to level up to like level 32 of sanctification before God will then give you eternal life. No, it's not like that at all. This is the point of verse 23. Eternal life is the free gift of God. And when you serve sin, sin will give you in exchange exactly what you deserve. It will give you wages. Here's what you earned. You earned death, and so that's what I'm going to pay you. Death is the natural consequence of obeying the voice of sin in your life. But when you trust in Jesus... When you bow before the Lord Jesus, when you offer him your sword, yourself, and you say, I am at your service now, Lord Jesus. He gives you something you do not deserve. He gives to you the free gift of his resurrection life. A new kind of life that has the power to change you from the inside out. It's the power to help you to make different kinds of choices, to react to life in a different way. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're ever looking for just, just one verse in the Bible that could help you to share with somebody um, that you wanted, to, you wanted to explain to them the good news of Jesus in one short, pithy sentence. Well, this would be a great choice.
Our sin has earned us death. That's what we deserve. But Jesus, Jesus died for us on the cross and he rose again from the dead so that he could give to us life. Not just life that goes on and on and on and on. Which actually might not be all that attractive. If it's not a better kind of life. Life with him. Really living. Really living in the way that we were made to live. Isn't that good news? Don't you want that kind of life? It's the kind of life that Jesus gives to every man and woman and boy and girl who will look to him in faith and will say, Jesus, I am yours. Save me. Forgive me. Help me. I don't want to serve my sin anymore. I want to serve you. I want to be at your service now and forever. We are living in a world that is constantly telling us you don't have to answer to anybody. You just do you. You are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. But it really is the fact that you're going to have to serve somebody. So who's it going to be? Or wouldn't you rather serve Jesus? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are yours. We are not our own. We are at your service. Such as it is, Lord, we, not that that really is much to offer you. You know that better than anyone. But Lord, we ask that you would receive us in union with our Savior, Jesus. We ask you this in his name. Amen.